No fish have been harmed in the making of this podcast. Welcome to Talking Bass in PDX as we talk fishing in the Northwest. Hi, I'm Don Clark and I'll be your host. I'd like to welcome everybody aboard as we get underway. I do have a special guest on this episode, but before we talk to them, let me talk to you about Talking Bass in PDX, the podcast. The podcast is all about fishing in the Northwest, and if you enjoy listening, help us grow by telling your friends about the podcast and that we can be found on Anchor FM, Breaker, Spotify, and others. On this episode of Talking Bass in PDX, I will host Bud Hartman. Many of you may know Bud. He's been fishing the Northwest for over 60 years. Bud did a lot of warm water fishing on the East Coast also prior to coming to Oregon and was stationed out in Oregon with the U.S. Air Force where he decided to stay. After settling in Portland, Bud went to work selling fishing tackle at Freeway Sporting Goods where the original Oregon Bass Club got its start. Bud's been a member of the club since the beginning over 60 years ago and is an honorary life member. Bud has served as president over a 10-year period of time, and is the club historian. Bud also is a community supporter. Bud has worked as an advisor and fish identification person as a volunteer for Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. Bud's an ardent supporter of the right for warm water fish to exist in Oregon and continues to defend their presence. Bud is a longtime member of the Warm Water Champions. On this episode, let's take a look back to the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, where as a young person, you might have asked your parents, hey, can I go fishing? They would have asked you to be home by dark, and the best part is there were no cell phones to deal with. And now, Bud Hartman. Welcome to the podcast, Bud. And as we get started here, Bud kicks the podcast off with telling a story as he was growing up. Well, Don, I was born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland, and uh, came from the Lower East Side of Baltimore, and if you've never been to some of the East Coast cities, the older ones, you, you, you don't imagine what it's like living in the core of a city like that, where there is no such thing as grass, there are no lawns, there are no trees except in a park, uh, everything is row houses, concrete and steel, and cement streets, and so forth. So there's no quote-unquote wilderness. Well, being raised in that environment, I had no idea what a fish was or going fishing or anything else. It never dawned on me. Try to make a long story short, I was, I was going to a Catholic school at the time, grade school, and uh, we had a, a young boy transfer from out of the city of Baltimore into my district, and he came to school at St. Michael's, where I was happy to be going to school, in the... Um, third grade, second or third grade, and he lived near to where my home was too, so we became kind of friends and started talking to each other, and he was from a place called Lake Roland, a little suburb north of Baltimore, and he said to me one time on a Friday or whenever it was, he said, hey, this weekend, my mom wants me to take a little birthday gift back to one of our next door neighbor girls where I moved from. Would you like to take a ride up to Lake Roland with me? And I said, oh, I guess, what do we do? And he says, well, we'll get a bus. We'll get on Baltimore City Transit, and we'll take a bus up to Lake Roland. So got some money, got, got the prize, the package, got on the bus, went up, delivered the package to the little girl and whatnot. Oh, wow, lawns, trees, people, I'll be damned. 
Anyway, when we left this house where this little girl lived, he said to me, would you like to see where I used to go fishing when I lived here? I said, fishing? What, what fishing? He said, yeah, no, you know, we catch some fish. I said, sure, why not? So he took me, we got on a streetcar, of all things, and the tracks went alongside this damn lake up there north of Baltimore. So we went up there, and we get out, and this, this is a long story, but it was really interesting because it set a passion in me. We get out of the streetcar, and we walk down to where the dam is that forms this lake, and there's a little boat rental thing there that had long been closed, but there was a concrete platform, as I recall, and there was a gentleman there fishing with a fly rod. And we walked over, and we're just little kids, and we walked over, and my buddy says to him, Bobby Schilling, his name was, he says, hey, mister, are you catching anything? And the guy says, no, not really. And he says, I used to live here, and I used to fish here a lot and catch a lot of bluegills right here. And the guy says, oh, really? So he says, could we borrow a piece of line or string or something, and I'll show my friend here how we used to fish these things. And the guy was a nice gentleman. He goes through his little tackle bag or whatever he had, and he, he breaks off a couple of pieces of some kind of line, whatever it was, I had no idea, gives us a couple of little long shank hooks, and we go on our way. So we walk up the shoreline of this lake, and there's a spring up there. And I got to know it well as I got older, as the years went by. This spring was a producer of bait. So anyway, Bobby Schilling says to me, we'll go get some bait out of that little spring up there, some little red wigglers or some kind of worms or something, and uh, we'll go break a, a willow out of a tree branch here and tie this strand. So we did. We rigged up these little damn things on a, on a twig, got the worms, we go down the shoreline, and I said to and the guy that gave us the stuff is still fly fishing down, down the shoreline from me, within sight. Bobby Schilling says to me, okay, when I do this and I put this, and I had no idea what he was doing. I'd never seen anything like this. He put this little worm on his little hook. And he says, now you see where these bushes are hanging over in the water here? And I said, yeah. He says, you want to, don't fall in the water, but get out as close as you can and reach around the end with this willow twig and just dangle that thing down with that piece of worm on there in front of those bushes and see if we can get a bite. Well, anyway, within a half hour, maybe 45 minutes, we must have caught 20 frickin' bluegills. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. What the hell is this? I'd never seen anything like this in my life. So he goes to another tree up there, and he breaks out another couple of limbs that are fork-shaped like this, like a slingshot thing, and starts sliding these bluegills down through the, through the limb on each side. And then we go back down to, it's time to go home. So we walked back down to where the guy was fly fishing, and he's got a hold of this double-bent stick, if you can picture that, with these bluegills hanging like a stalk of bananas on there. And we walked back down to thank the man for giving us a piece of string and a hook. And he says, oh, my God, where did you kids catch those? They're all right over there fishing along the trees. He couldn't believe it. But we did. We came back home with them damn bluegills on a Baltimore City Transit Company bus carrying bluegills with no plastic bag, no nothing, just like carrying them like this. And, and then my mom cleaned them when we got home and fried them, and that was my first time ever. And to make that long story short, that was the beginning of a lifetime of angling for me. It, it just it went from there to worse. I mean, I, just, I was so badly hooked, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't wait to get back and do this again. That's how it all started. Wow. What what a great story. And I, I was sitting here just uh, enamored by the story. So that 
that starts your fishing adventure off. As I was growing after this incident, I became a teenager and whatnot. I started hanging around a tackle store in Baltimore. It was within walking distance of my house. And, and I used to like to go in there and listen to the adults, quote-unquote, talking about fishing and reports and one thing or another. And if they moved around the store from one counter to another with a customer, I would move with them, just listen. I was trying to learn. I was soaking it up like osmosis. And it got so bad that I, I became known to the guys that owned the store. So when I graduated high school, well, even before that, while I was still in high school, they called me, one of the owners called me aside one day and said, Bud, would you like to come to work for, for my brother and I after school and on weekends? And I said, sure. So I was doing stockroom stuff and whatnot. And one time they said to me, come to, come to work tomorrow with a, with a nicer shirt and comb your hair a little better. We want you to work on the floor and see if you can sell some fishing tackle. So I did. Never looked back. I never went to the warehouse again. So anyway, the draft was in vogue then. The Korean War was just winding down. And some of my buddies in the neighborhood that were a little older than me started getting their greetings from Uncle Sugar. And my uncle, my one and only uncle on my dad's side, said to me, Bud, if you're going to get drafted, whatever you do, don't let them get you in that damned army. And I said, oh, why is that? He says, you don't want to live in a foxhole and you don't want to eat sea rations. He had been in WW2 and had been on Okinawa. And he said to me, you want to pick something different. Get in the Navy, get in the Air Force, do something, but stay out of that army. I said, okay, Uncle Bill, I'll do that. Well, when some of my buddies started getting their, their mail notices, I told my boss at Tockerman's, the tackle store, I said, tomorrow I think I'm going to take the morning off. I'll come in late. I'm going to go to the post office and talk to a recruiter over there and find out what some of my options are. That's alluding to what you just asked. I ended up going to join the Navy, and I ended up joining the Air Force instead because they had a better offer for me. And uh, I, went to, I went to basic training in, in New York, and I went to a tech school in Belleville, Illinois, as an um, airborne communication specialist. And when it was time to graduate there, I had my choice of open bases for my specialty code. One of them was Presque Isle, Maine, and one was Portland, Oregon. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, now, I'm only 19 years old, but I've been to Maine. And I know they have nasty winters up there, and I am not going to go to Maine. So I said, send me to Portland, Oregon. What the heck? And that's where I ended up with a fighter squadron here in Portland and been here ever since. Spent my whole enlistment here, met my wife here, got, got married here, and, and I'm still here. But the fishing part of it that you ask about was totally different. I didn't have a car. I lived on the base. I had not even met Marsha at that time early. That was 1956, early 1956. And uh, one of the guys told me there was a river flowed. I was a fisherman from back east, a young guy. said there's a river flows into the Columbia River east of, of the air base here, a place called Troutdale. It's called the Sandy River. You might want to go out there. I had, I had brought packed when I left Baltimore. I had packed some fishing tackle with me. I had my little vest and I had some little spinner things, things we used, and one rod and reel, a spinning rod and reel. And I thought, well, I'm going to hitchhike or get a ride or something to get me out to this sandy river. And uh, I went to Stark Street Bridge, Viking Park, 60 years ago. Started casting a, never forget it, started casting a um, Evans shyster it was called a spinner 
Lord Jensen ended up buying the line years later. But anyway, and I got a strike. Something hit my spinner. And I instinctively jerked the set to hook. And I had caught landlocked salmon and some other smaller fish back east. And all of a sudden, here come this thing that looked like a Polaris missile out of the bottom of a sandy river, went airborne, straight up, right in front of my eyes, shaking like a, like you couldn't believe it. And the spinner went one way and the fish went the other way and it hit with a kersplash. And I was dumbfounded. And, and a guy was, was walking up the bank right there and he come over and he says, boy, that was a nice one. And I turned and looked at him and I said, what the hell was that? And he says, that was a steelhead. I said, what's a steelhead? I didn't know what a steelhead was. But yeah, I found the fishing to be totally different here. But once I discovered that there were bass here, but that was my forte back east, bigger than heck. Uh, I found out there were some places where you could fish for them here. One of the guys at the air base showed me a place called Rock Island Slough down on the Willamette River, just upstream from Oregon City. Caught some largemouth bass and crappies in there one time with him driving. We just went down, and that was kind of the start of it. In your fishing now, as you were looking for, for other fish, was was coming onto the bass and crappie accidental, or were you kind of well, looking it, for it? it kind of was. We... That, that was another interesting. This one guy, Fred Roach was his name. He was a, he was a staff sergeant too down there in the air base. He said to me, "You want to go trout fishing Saturday morning or whatever it was at that time?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "We'll go to this place called the Sandy Ann River, and they stock it with trout. And we'll go trout fishing." So we go trout fishing. He's going to lead the way, and we fished I don't know a couple of hours. And I think the biggest fish we caught was about seven inches. I mean, a little dinky thing like this. And I said, man, this is not fun. He says, well, let's, let's go back home. What the hell? So we're coming back up 99E. And he said to me, there were fish for crappies or bass or anything like that? And I said, oh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I am. And he said, why don't I pull over and stop up here at this thing called Rock Island Slough up here by Oregon City? And we can park on the shoulder of the road and walk down the bank. And he said, there's a slough down here that sometimes... Well, anyway, I had my vest, so I had little small lures with me anyway. And I had these things we called quilby minnows that we used back east a great deal. I had some of those with me. And uh, he put a little hot shot on, as I recall, a Lure Jensen hot shot with a split shot the way it made a cast at one point. And he caught a crappie, and the crappie was about a 10-incher, a nice black crappie. And I said, oh, hell, there's crappies in here. He says, yeah. I said, well, I think I'll put one of my quilby minnows on. And I made two or three casts and caught two or three fish, and they were all pounders. I mean, they were nice crappies. And he said, you got any more of them things? And I said, yeah. So I gave him one to tie on. And we sat there, moved a little bit on the bank, and we caught, I don't know how many we caught, because I got a picture of them laying on a lawn at the first apartment that I had lived in. We caught our fill of pound crappie, 12 inches. I mean, they were nice crappies. And that was my introduction to bass and crimp handfish in Oregon. And I said, man, this I've died and gone to heaven. This is the place. So you decided to stay in, in Oregon, and it's been, you know, I've, I've known you for quite a few years, and it's been quite a pleasure. But, you know, as you uh, moved on out of the service, and you started working for uh, another sporting goods store, and a club started. Tell me a little bit about that story. Well, we... There was a bunch of guys, well, not a bunch, a small group of us. I've always thought to myself that birds of a feather flock together. 
So people with a common interest somehow find each other. Well, I was mentally a bass fisherman in a salmon and steelhead world here in Oregon. Bass fishermen were few and far between and hardly ever heard from and so forth. But somehow we find each other. And I made a guy who meets a guy who meets a guy. And I'm ending up working at Freeway Sporting Goods after I got out of the Air Force. And I helped them put in some bass fishing kind of gear, told them what to order and so forth. And they knew I was a bass fisherman from back east. Well, guys started coming into the, into the store and buying stuff, and I get to meet them and so forth. So a few of us get together, and we're going to have a cup of coffee one day. And one of them says, why don't we form a bass club? Well, we can get some people interested and whatnot. So he did. And what's really interesting, this is a little off the, <laughs> off the subject, but we were going to have this organizational meeting at a place called Tidwell's. Jim Tidwell, he was one of the first presidents of our club when, once we formed. He had a little cafe over in North Portland, up by St. Vincent Hospital somewhere up there, or Good Sam, or whatever the one is up in Northrop, up that way. He had a little coffee shop. We were going up there and having pre-organizational meetings, all with some guys. Bill Hewland from the Oregonian was there, Roy Hughes, Frank Dumovich, myself, somewhere. Don Schiller, talking about, let's form a bass club. And, and the interesting thing was when the meeting was over and all, and we decided, yeah, we're going to look into this a little bit. He had his waitress come and present us each with a check for the coffee that we drank at his meeting at his restaurant, and it cost us each a dime. Wow! So to even even we, go to the very first meeting, the it started very first costing meeting, we had to pay ten cents for our cup of coffee. I'll, I'll never forget that; it was funny. But anyway, that was the start of it. And then they got an attorney, and and one thing led to another. And you and I have talked a little bit about the. Articles of Incorporation, how it all came to pass. And we formed this club and put the word out because Bill Hewan, who was the outdoor writer for the Oregonian at the time, he was real big on bass fishing and he was one of our charter members. And he started putting notices in the paper about this club, the formation of the new kids on the block, so to speak. And pretty soon inquiries started coming in. And by the end of the first year, we had 70 some odd people had signed up. Oh, okay, and so that's did, how your membership got out there. We just so. got off to a walloping start. Dues were $2 a year. So even in the 1950s, we didn't have social media, but we did have the newspaper, the and newspaper. the word got around fast. The newspaper was, was the, yeah. Uh, so your meetings that you were holding then must have started at Freeway Sports? Well, the very first one we had was at the Oregonian building, mm-hmm. believe it or not. We had, we had the Oregonian in one of our conference rooms, and then we had to move from there. So we ended up at Freeway Sporting Goods, which I was working in the, in the early 1959 at the time. We had a, had a gun range, a shooting range, in the basement of that store. It's still over there on 181st and Halsey. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there was a shooting range in there, and it was all armor-plated so that bullets wouldn't go through the ceiling and hit customers up in the retail store. Well, they allowed, Dick Neville and Jim Wyden, the owners, allowed our club to use that gun range down below one month out of the year, one, one night out of the year, out of the, out of the month rather, to have a bass club meeting. And, and we met there until that store went out of business. And uh, our, our membership started growing from that point. We were not as sophisticated as we are now. There were no computers uh, for entertainment, and I was the club projectionist. We had 16 millimeter sound on film kind of thing. Once in a while, a guest speaker, fishing reports, you know, a little raffle table. It's very, very basic. 
When the store went out of business and we had to move, we ended up relocating to Foster's Sporting Goods down on yeah. 79th and Foster. Okay. Henning Hellstrom owned Foster's Sporting Goods. He welcomed us with open, open arms because we'd spend money in his store. But they'd have to move some displays or whatnot and some put us in the back of the, back of the store at, during business hours. It was terrible because business was going on. There were customers in there, and we were trying to conduct a meeting with all this noise and bedlam and whatnot. So we didn't really last there too long. We ended up moving from there to a community center somewhere on Holgate, I believe it was, for only one meeting. And then we went from there, and we ended up at the uh, Lloyd Center Auditorium. We had tried to get in there for a long time. We finally got in there, and it was kind of spendy. We had to pay rent down there. But we were there for 20 20-some years, and then when we got evicted from there, we ended up at the PGE Service Center, because they closed that auditorium, is what they did. They turned it into a retail space. Otherwise, we were good tenants for them, but we ended up at the PGE Service Center Auditorium, and and just as a sidelight, that's interesting. They always told us, when, when I happened to be present in a couple of different terms during all of this, when I went and negotiated with their people to get a meeting hall, a place where we could meet, uh, they kept saying, no vacancy, no vacancy, no, we're not allowing new groups on. And finally got to the point where they said, okay, we'll let you in, but we're going to charge you. So they're going to charge us, as I recall, $75 a month for a two-hour meeting period. And we started having the treasurer make out the checks and send it in, and we started meeting there. And after a while, the treasurer at one of our board meetings, the treasurer said, I'm not seeing those checks come back from PGE and I'm wondering what's happening there. Somebody has to check with their accounting department and find out what the hell's going on. So I did. I went to PGE down on Southeast 17th, told them who I was and so forth. And they got me in the accounting department. They looked through. They had a stack of checks there from our club. They never processed them. They didn't know what the hell to do with them. And I said, wait a minute. What, what, is, what is that? They said, well, we, we never did this before, so we don't know what category to put it in. So they gave us all the checks back to void them, and they canceled the tickets. You don't have to pay anything. We met there for 27 years and never paid a nickel. <laughs> wow. So let's start talking about the fishing that was going on, though, in these early years from the club starting around 1958 to, you know, through the 60s. It must have been a completely different brand of fishing over we've, what we see today. We've seen a total evolution. Yes, you're, you're right, Don, in that. In the early years, if I fished the Willamette River, or even the lower Columbia out here, for warm water fish, quote-unquote, the only thing I was really going to catch were catfish, maybe some yellow perch, largemouth bass, if you were a large, if you were a bass fisherman. And other than that, it was, you might say, pretty slim pickings. But then as the years have gone by, and I don't know if it's because of hydroelectric projects, dams that have been built, changes that have been made in the, in the ecosystem or whatever, the water quality has changed in such a way that the fish have blossomed, so to speak. We've got more bluegills now, we've got more crappies now, we've got channel catfish which have been baited from farther east from here we got a thing called a walleye that has come down this river, which is was totally foreign to us until the early 1980s. I mean, we knew what they were, but we know they but weren't they weren't, here. you weren't catching them. They were not here. Early no, days, they were somewhere else. Okay. And uh, channel catfish, 
smallmouth bass, if we wanted to catch a smallmouth bass, and some of us wanted to, because mm-hmm. we knew what they were, we had to go to at least the, the city of Arlington on the Columbia River, and from that point eastward up toward McNary Dam. You didn't find any smallmouth from Arlington down this way. And then came a time when the Corps of Army Engineers and their infinite wisdom decided they were going to build another hydroelectric project on the Columbia River, and they built the John Day Dam. And while the John Day Dam was in under construction, the Columbia River at that point was a free-flowing river. I mean, it was, wow. you were chest waders like you were trout fishing, and we'd go and catch smallmouth bass up there. Huh? But when they built that dam and finally said, that's it, we're going to put the plug in, and we're going to start filling this reservoir now. Well, those of us who fished up that way thought, well, that's the end of our smallmouth fishing, because once they flood this whole damn gorge up here, who knows what's going to happen to these fish? Well, the biologists knew what was going to happen to them. It was the best thing that ever happened to us. I mean, there was a population explosion of fish up there. You, you can't believe how good it was. Because what happened when you build a reservoir like that, and it goes over what, what is normally dry territory land with insects and grubs and things and whatnot, once it got flooded, all that stuff prospered and the fish just exploded. Exploded up there. Wow. So, And you've talked to me a little bit before, but how often did, did you get to go fishing? You were working full time. Yeah. So were you gone every weekend? Or just weekends. You yeah. and the family would go? and There were times... Marsha's not here to hear this. There were times that Marsha knew I was a bass fisherman, and I like to go early in the morning to go back. I like surface plug fishing for bass. And before our two little boys were born, I mean, way back when, early, I'd say to her, hey, I'm going to go to such and such lake tomorrow morning. Uh, you going to go? Well, yeah, I may as well. I said, okay, I'm going to leave at quarter after five. So if you want to go, be ready. And I'm going to get the boat hooked up, and we're going to be gone. And more often than not, I ended up having to wait. Quarter after 5 would come. 5.30 would come. She'd be fiddling around, doing whatever. And finally one day I said to her, and we did this for a number of trips. One day I said to Marsha, I said, look, tomorrow I'm going to go over to Lackamas Lake. I'm going to leave at about quarter after 5. If you want to go, be in the car when I start it up. Otherwise, I'll see you when I get home. Got to be quarter after five. She was not in the car. I started it up, and I went. And I went fishing. I came home. She liked to come on glued. Told her mother about it. She said, you know what he did? So after that, she learned. She said, if I want to go, I better be ready when he's ready to go. But yeah, you're right. I did fish weekends, every weekend. And so one other thing that I was wanting to ask while we're, while we're still on fishing is that You've been in the tackle business for a very, very long, long time. time. What kind of evolutions did you see in the early 60s? Because I know now things have really evolved, but what did you see early on that really caught your eye? Okay, the thing that the thing that I think that helped me the most personally, and, and a bass fisherman in general, was the advent or the, the coming of soft plastic lures. You know, we had used crankbaits and, you know, plugs and spinners and whatnot for years and yet I mean way back even before my time I'm in the it's, 20s and 30s and so plastic started in the early 60s 60s there okay. was there okay. was a thing that came and a lot of guys might 
contradict this, but if you look at some of the history, and I've got history books on fishing lures and whatnot going way back in my library in the other room, you look at um, soft plastics, soft plastics um, probably in about 1950, 59, 60, somewhere in there, there was a there was two lures that came to mind to me that started appearing in ads or whatever. One was called the DeLong's Witch and the DeLong's Six Inch Dew Worm. And they came out of a city in Iowa somewhere. And they were a, a plastic some guys called them rubber worms, but they were not rubber, they were plastic. Anyway, synthetic, these things. And I looked at them and thought, oh, how do you do that? And then there was an outfit in uh, Caldwell, Idaho. Um, Lure Jensen ended up buying the company. Anyway, they bought these lures. They bought this line of lures from, from Caldwell, Idaho. And they had one that they called a sneal. And the sneal was supposed to be a combination of a snake and an eel. So it was a real long, skinny, soft plastic kind of worm, and it was factory rigged with one single weedless hook up at the head end of it, but it was 11 inches long, unstretched. It was about that long. And I was enamored by the, by the thought of this. Well, at the same time, a guy by the name of Bill Dance, who hardly anybody knew anything about, came out with a book called There He Is. And it's, a, and it's a book all about plastic worm fishing and how to rig them and whatnot in the early days. So I got my hands on a copy of this book, and I started looking at it, and I started fishing these soft plastics. You ask about what? And I, here was the big turnaround. And I was just going to ask, what was the success rate with plastics? I was keeping records at the time, because our contest director at the time in our club, Roy Hughes, he was a stickler on written records. He said, I want to know every fish, every bite, everything you guys do. So I started keeping just, just counts on how many bass I caught on these things called soft plastic lures. And I always told people, I found out through my experimenting, any color was good as long as it was black or purple. Any other colors, forget them. You don't need them. If you can't catch them on a black or a purple one, forget it. Dana, don't, don't go fishing. Watch a ball game on TV. But the first year I fished plastic worms in Lacamas Lake alone, I caught over 500 bass in one season over there. 500. 500. My actual count, yeah. So that was the beginning of, of it for me. And of course, you know now, when you look at catalogs and you look in retail stores and you look at what's available, everybody and his brother is now making soft plastic lures. And they're all very good. They all catch fish. But that was the biggest evolution, I think, in bass fishing that we saw. Everything had been hard baits up until then. Or feathered jigs or things like that, you know. And now, what about your rods and reels? Was there an evolution at that time also, or have they pretty much little tiny bit? But but I, I think the rods have gotten better with the advent of graphite and whatnot. Uh, some of the manufacturers, since I was in the business selling tackle, I was always up front and and foremost to, to get my hands on new things. One of the things that the manufacturers tried to implement with a whole bunch of hype, was boron, boron rods. And boron rods were going to become very, very popular, but I don't think the manufacturers ever really learned how to properly make 
boron fibers into a fishing rod because it turns out that even though they were sensitive and they were they felt good, they were very, very fragile and they just broke too damned easily. I mean you could bruise you could take a take a run and just wrap it on the gunnel of a boat like that. You'd better bet. The next time you put a strain on, it's going to break right there. Uh, it bruised the fibers is what it did. Uh, it so boron them. never really became a thing. And so as the club goes on, one of the things that the Oregon Bass and Panfish Club has always been known for was its service, was teaching people how to fish. Now, did that start very early on with the club, or is that something that has developed over no, the years? We, we like to think that we, we're, we were a bass club. I still think of us as a bass club. But we were never what you traditionally think of as a bass club now. Tournament-oriented, win at all costs, don't tell your buddies where you caught them, where, you know, and what you caught them on, so on and so on. We were always more free with the information. And we always had that slogan, I guess you might say, about bass fishermen. you want to learn where to, when to, and how to, contact us at this P.O. box or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, bring your tired, your poor to us, and we'll teach you. Yeah, we were will- we were always willing to share information. Yeah. Oh, that that you know that has been the one thing that throughout the years, uh, and there's been a number of projects, uh, passport for kids for people who are oh, older yeah. and remember that how much fun it was, but it was a lot of work, and you know even even now you know we're still working with uh, Cast for Kids, which is an organiz- yeah. organization that brings kids out fishing. So I'm glad to hear that we've, uh, you know, that we've done that throughout the years. And uh, one of the early ones that we did, that you, I think it was before your time, we did one with GI Joes down at Crystal Springs, down in Eastmoreland or Westmoreland Park, whatever they call it, where they screened off that creek down there and loaded trout in there. And they paid for them. GI Joes did. And they had a big promo kind of a thing. One weekend. I was the MC of this thing. They set up a PA system on one of the little bridges, and we had groups of people out there fishing, kids 12 and under. We fished over 5,000 kids in one weekend. Wow. And everybody caught at least a trout. Yeah. Very, very yeah. good. Now, one of the things that I wanted to ask, this is just a, you know, uh, toward you, What you're out fishing, and it can be any time that this has happened. What's the most unusual thing that you've ever caught? most unusual thing. And I didn't mean to be a showstopper. I just thought it would be a neat yeah. question. Probably, well, there's been a couple of things, but one in particular that, that comes to mind as soon as you said that. My oldest son was with me at the time. Happened to be at Lackamas Lake. Always been one of my favorite places to fish. And I was using I was using a Burke's Little Big Date. Burks was a company that made, they pioneered a thing called a soft plug. They were made out of a, they were crankbaits, but they were made out of a soft closed cell foam, had a 90 pound test stainless steel chain molded inside of them to connect the two treble hooks together. Uh-huh. But they were flexible, they would bend like this, and the guy Bing McClellan that invented these things, and I happened to meet him personally, he invented a paint that would not crack or craze or whatnot. They could spray paint these damn plugs, 
and yet you could bend and flex them like that, and the paint flexed right along with it. So really strange. As, as Bud's talking, he's flexing this like you would those glasses that are so flexible oh, you yeah, can turn yeah. them around. So that, that's what he's trying to describe. Very so, so, so anyway, I'm throwing this plug over there at this Lacrimus Lake, and I flip it up in this one little spot where Eric and I are fishing along there, and I see I see a fish come out. I start to crank it down. It's a floating plug, and I start to crank it down, and I see a fish come out, and I say, whoa, look at that one, Eric. And about the time it was to get to my plug, a little guy about this long come out of nowhere, from out of the grass or somewhere there, and grabbed my frickin' plug, and down he went. And the big one was sitting there looking like, what, where'd that go? So I started biting this little fish. I said, damn, this little guy got it instead. Well, as I lifted my rod tip up to get him close enough to bring him in sight, I could see the big one swirling around him like this. Well, the little guy, he's about a 10 or 11 inch bass, about this big. He's got my plug in his mouth, broadside like this. And the little guy's got it. And Eric's looking over the side of the boat. And the big one is doing this. And the little guy's trying to dart like this. And Eric says, don't lift it out of the water. Drop it back. Let him have it. And I just lowered my rod jib. And it went like that. And I jerked the set the hook. And damn if I didn't have both of them on. So I got the big one. He's about six pounds. So I got about a six pounder. And he's got about a 10 inch broadside in his mouth with my plug stuck in the corner of his mouth. Wow. And I ended up getting both of them. So yeah. you got a two for one. Yeah, I got a two but, for one. But it was on one hook. Well, that that is a... That is a very interesting story. And then I wanted to talk to you a little bit about some of your work that you've done with ODFW because I know that, you know, as a supporter of warm water fish, it's a constant challenge because, I, you know, it's, it's tough out there to, to get our, our story out. And so just tell me a little bit about the warm water champions and, and what you guys do and what you're trying to accomplish. Well, the warm, the warm water champion is our latest... Effort to try to get ODFW to recognize the value of the warm water fishery in the state of Oregon. This resource. It's been it's been years that I've been fighting this battle. I was legislative director for a number of years for the club. When I came into the club, when we formed this club, Bill Hewlin and Roy Hughes and I. He was our first vice president. Roy Hughes was. Bill Hewlin. I told you he was. We went to a commission meeting when they met here and they were in downtown Portland at the time. Went to a commission meeting one time and we wanted to petition them, they were setting regulations, to put a bag limit on bass. There was no bag limit, no size limits, no annual limit, no nothing. There was nothing on warm water fish. Well, I'll take that back. Believe it or not, there was a bag limit on bullhead catfish. It was the only one that had a regulation on it at the time. And it was for 99 per person per day. And just so the folks will know, now about what year is this? This is about 1960, okay. 61 maybe. Want to give them some reference. Yeah, 60, 61. So we're going to say, wait a minute. What the hell are you guys looking a gift horse in the mouth? We got this prime game fish, the number one game fish in the United States. And you guys got no bag limit, no size limit, no nothing, but get them crummy catfish. You got a 99 per day you let guys have on that. Not 199, excuse me. We wanted, we wanted them to put, a, um, to put a bag limit. We discussed amongst the three of us and our club members, 10 per day. We didn't say anything about size limit, just 10, 10 bass maximum per day. 
they hemmed and hawed around over it, the commission did, and they finally threw us a bone. And they did pass it, except they made it 12. So we're, we're going to change the regulation next year, 12 bass, large or smallmouth bass, per day, individual bag limit. Well, it was, it was something. We had nothing prior to that. Two or three years later, their own staff came to them and asked them if there was still justification to keep that bag limit like that, and their staff said, no, there's not. We'd like to see it reduced to five per day. We think the resource is too valuable to let it be utilized the way it's being utilized. So they changed it to five per day, three of which could be over 15 inches, and that's the way it had been for years and years and years, and we're, we're satisfied with that. Some waters they changed to only one per day. Some they changed to no limit. One of my lakes, they put a no bass. I went and petitioned them on Lake Lytle down at the Rockaway Beach. No bass per day. Catch and release only. So now here we are, 60 years later, and we've gone back to square one, to where they've removed the bag limit, they've taken off the size limit, they've shot themselves in the foot. Well, and, uh, you know, I hope you guys, uh, as a group, continue working on it because I think it's still a very valuable resource, and I think everybody in our in the club thinks that. So I, I wish you well with your your endeavors. Let me on that. let me finish by saying this, Don. I'm 83 years old now. I've been in this club since I was 20 years old, and. I have said on occasion, I've done seminars, I've done clinics, I've attended meetings, I've been on committees, I've done everything I can to defend the right of these fish to exist in the state of Oregon. And I, and I said one time at the dedication of, of a pond up in the Columbia Gorge, I said, I would like to think that warm water fishing in the state of Oregon will be better as a result of my having been here, I hope that's still the case. And I, you know, I think that is uh, such a, a, a great statement. And I think that's a great place to uh, to kind of put the wraps on this particular show. But uh, I certainly plan to have part two coming up. So I'd like to thank you, Bud, and uh, thanks for coming by. You're welcome. Well, I'd like to thank Bud Hartman for stopping by today and talking to us on Talking Bass and PDX. Now, if many of you remember the original podcast that I put out and that I was talking about the Outback Angler during that podcast, Bud appeared on that show several times over the years. So it was a very special uh, interview that I've had with him. Now, this is a multi-part series, so Bud will be back for a, an additional part or two coming up. And in the meantime, if you have any feedback or would like to contact me for show ideas, please email me at gonefishingpdx at gmail.com. That can be found in the show notes. And I would like to thank everybody. Until next time, this is Don Clark, Talking Bass and PDX. I'll see you on the backcast.